All right, welcome everybody. This is Derek Bodner, joined by Rich Hoffman on this week's Sixers Beat, a part of the CLNS Media Network. We have a 43-25 and 25 Philadelphia 76ers club that is now in the third place in the Eastern Conference, owning the tiebreaker over the Indiana Pacers. I guess to get this out of the way, we are recording this before the game against the Sacramento Kings uh, for context reasons. But the Sixers, 43 and 25, third place in the Eastern Conference. I would say probably the odds on favorite to end up with the third seed in, in, when all is said and done, uh, given the ease of their schedule. But anything could happen. Boston doesn't p- play a brutally tough schedule either, so they are certainly still very much in the mix. But this is a team now, you know, with 14 games left, 43 wins already on the season. You're probably looking about another 52 win season, give or take. So the only thing that you can talk about on Twitter right now is Sixers head coach Brett Brown. If you mention anything good or bad, it's going to end up circling back to Brett Brown in some way. It's a very passionate, heated topic. So we figured we'd take a step back, evaluate the Sixers head coach, evaluate, kind of like lay out our stance on the whole matter and go from there. But before we get into any of that, because I don't want to be rude. How you doing, Rich? I'm good, man. I'm uh, I'm going to make a correction on you. Uh, the Sixers are in fourth. Indiana beat Oklahoma City a few minutes ago. So I, I don't have. I'm looking at Basketball Reference. I don't have live updated standings. Um, so the Sixers a half game out with a with then a game in hand. Correct. Yep. Okay. Well, I made it through thirty seconds, give or take, of this podcast without making a mistake. So I guess I will take that. Yeah. Uh, so back to Brett. I, by the way, this was your idea. I'm just putting this out there. You, you were the one <laughs> who, I believe, during a game, told me we need to do a podcast about Brett. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think it's good. I mean, it, it's what everybody talks about all the time. So why don't we do one? It, it makes sense. I, uh, I, I think in just starting to lay out my stance, I am not here to say that he can't be criticized. Uh, There are things that we will uh, point out that we think he could be doing better this year. Uh, But I think in general, my mentions after every single loss are complaints about his coaching. Yep. During a lot of wins, there are complaints about his coaching. As you said, the Sixers are on pace to win 52 games. Uh, you didn't say that, but that that's that is the exact number on five thirty eight right now. So I I guess I'm I'm not saying that you can't criticize him, but if there are complaints after all thirty losses, and also a bunch of wins too, I think your expectations are very likely too high. I mean, good teams, even historically good teams. Take uh take this year's Milwaukee Bucks are going to lose twenty times every year. It's just gonna happen. It, it, it's why Golden State winning seventy three games is such an insane accomplishment. And uh, hey, look, I, I mean, we're, we'll talk about this too. the The playoffs are what he's going to be judged on for better or worse, and it, it just seems like sometimes, and I can be guilty of this sometimes too. We uh, 
we live and die with every game. And, every and part game. of that is Philadelphia and just the, the passionate sports market, which I'm very happy to be a part of. And I think part of it is just uh, us overreacting. You can't it, look being a fan. I, I get it. Like it, part of the fun of it. And part of the, part of the deal is to overreact after every game. But I mean, if you're looking at this and trying to be fair, you, you can't lose your mind after every loss. Like there are going to be things to criticize after every one of those losses when someone is under the microscope that Brett Brown seems to be. And that is, I think, why I want to do it. Because it, it just, to me, seems like we tend to be on the other side of this issue because I think we come from the point of view of, look, they're, they're going to lose a bunch of games. Like, you know, they're, they're on pace to win 52 games. There's going to be stuff to criticize in those 30 losses. Like, no duh. Yeah, I think so. I think especially if, if if you're talking about Twitter activity, I think a lot of the Twitter activity for me is sort of challenging criticisms. I think are ridiculous more so than saying he's above criticism. Like I think a lot of the criticisms are sort of boilerplate coaching criticisms that probably 25 fan bases in the league are levying at their coaches, and I just think we can do better than that in some regards. Like okay. Let's take a step back, first of all, because truthfully, I don't really care about the people who lose their mind every night. The only time it gets me is there's people who, whenever you disagree with them, will jump right to the, you know, you're on the coaching staff's payroll or or you need your access. Like I have one guy on Twitter and I'm not going to mention his handle here because that's not what I want to do. But he swears he has inside information on Brett giving me inside information. And that's why I'm, you know, defending him and all that stuff. The only time I get frustrated at fans is when you can't have a disagreement without them attacking your credibility. And if you, I have almost nobody blocked on Twitter, if you want me to block you, question my journalistic, journalistic credibility, which I always find funny, by the way, because if I'm selling out my journalistic soul for Brett Brown, where the hell are the inside stories that I should be getting for my journalistic soul? Like I'm doing a very bad job of it. You and I probably rely on access less than anyone. You and I probably, you know, we use quotes less than anyone. We break news less than most people. We sort of go out of our way. I will not say out of our way, but we've never been willing to make the trades sort of play the politics that it needs to become a high level newsbreaker. And that's been a very certainly on my part in my career, a very deliberate strategy. I think that fans, you know, are, are high, keenly aware of what they believe to be trade-offs. The media has to make in order to break news, in order to get stories, in order to get features. And I think that has disillusioned some fans from the media. And, you know, and there are, are two things that as someone covering the team, I, I truly care about. One is that I'm fair to the people I'm covering which is just flat out non-negotiable. But the second, and this is, is a priority, is many spots up the totem pole of importance over breaking news to me. But the second most important goal of mine is that our motivations are pure. Not that our opinions will always be correct, but that they will actually be our opinions, that they won't be built around this game of politics that are, are too often played, that if we're critical of someone, readers will have confidence that we're not being critical for the sake of clicks, and that if we're praising someone, it's not for access 
um, or, or the hope of access in the future. You know, my stance has always been that if I'm willing or if I'm worrying about either of those, when I'm presenting an opinion, I've already lost and I will sacrifice breaking news or the chance for chance for breaking news every time it means that readers can continue to trust our motivations. Um, and we have made that trade off in the past and we will certainly continue to do so if necessary. And to be honest, it's not so much the coaching staff you have to make those trade-offs for. It's more front office. It's very much agents. Um, if you want to break news, don't go criticizing players. That's a, a tough way to go about that business. But we've always sort of stood on the side of if we need to make a decision, do we give our opinion or do we worry about the ramifications of that? We fall on the side of give our opinion. Um, I think you and I are a little bit different than most media members. Like we don't have access or we don't have our platform because we have access to the team. We have at access to the team because of our platform. And we sort of came up as analysts and then got access. So I'm never going to really give that away. Like we make our money not based off of clickbait, not based off of page views. We make our money by keeping our subscribers happy. So I'm 100%. And, and by the way, clickbait is sort of against how we make our money. Like I had, I had somebody on Reddit, try to Reddit explain me uh, about a clickbait economy. We don't make money off of that. And we dis we disillusion our subscribers if we write that way. So if you and I have a disagreement, it's not because I'm selling myself out. Like really go through, look at our stories, find out which ones we needed super secret handshake lunches with Brett to figure out by ourselves that nobody else had. Like they, they just don't exist. That's not the game we play. That doesn't mean we don't talk to Brett. Of course we do. We talk to Colangelo, we talk to ownership, we talk to management, like we talk to everyone, that's our job, but we're not going to sell out our opinions because that's how we make our money. That's literally how we make our money. Yeah. And that drives me insane. I don't care if you disagree with me. I don't care if you disagree with me, agree with me on switches. Um, I don't care if you disagree with me um, about pushing the pace or shooting too many threes. That's all fine. Um, but Trust me, if we're selling our, our journalistic souls out, we're doing a very bad job of it because the asking price wasn't very high. Yeah, that that comes up pretty rarely for me, but you also have, I don't know, three times as many followers as I do. So that's that could be three times as many crazies potentially as well. It, it feels like, trust me, it feels like it goes up exponentially more. Um, three Poss times possibly. seems like it is a... Uh, Twitter was a much more fun place to be when you had like 4,000 followers and they all followed you because they... Um, they valued your in input, even if they didn't always agree with it. But uh, I'm yeah. getting off track. I don't want to complain about having success on Twitter. Um, the other thing I'd say is the way, how I sort of view our job, right? Like, and I think this is something that was kind of shaped to me by working at Draft Express all those years, in part because the way we approached that was we want to provide the reader with information, let the reader make their own decision. Um, and in part because covering the draft for years, you sort of get some built-in humility because especially after like the top five picks, you're going to be wrong 80% of the time. So don't pretend that you know everything. My goal covering the team isn't so much to tell you my opinion. Uh, I think that's probably a tact that I took more earlier in my career. And as I've sort of gotten away, my goal is to prevent the, present the reader with information. So, you know, basically what I'm trying to do is take our access, take the fact that we can sit here and watch each game three times and pour over the stats and, and and be obsessed with it and take that and you know convert that into information for the reader so the reader can make a more informed decision to have a more opinion a more informed opinion on their end that's sort of like my goal 
I think there's a lot of opinions in sports media. I think there's too many opinions in sports media. And my sort of goal is to provide information more so than opinions. So I'm more likely to write about, this is what I see. This is what their weakness is. This is what they need to fix. Than I am to say, this coach needs to be fired. Um, and, and in fact, if I'm going to get to that point wherever, and that doesn't mean I'm not going to have opinions, but if I'm going to get to that point, there's going to be, a, I'm going to have to be pretty gosh darn sure that I'm there. Like, I don't take saying that lightly. I don't take our platform lightly. And I guess the final thing I'll sort of say, and I'll, I'll let you get back to it. Um, I guess I'm on a little bit of a, a, a ranting mood here. Um, you know, I think I view this, view the NBA, and this is probably more applicable to the rest of our discussion from here on out. I view the NBA very much as a player's league. I view a lot of the problems that teams have and a lot of the strengths that teams have as being related to the players. And in part because of that, but also it's how I got into this business. My focus has always been on team building and talent acquisition and roster fit and roster construction. So I think a lot of times coaches tend to take the brunt of poor roster construction. I think a lot of times coaches get the benefit of good roster construction. I think at the end of the day, not that the coach doesn't have an impact. He does, especially when you start talking about evenly matched teams or, or teams that have to overcome disadvantages or what have you. But I think a lot of times players are the driving force and coaches sort of teams take the um, identity and the characteristics of their best players more than they do of the coach. And I think a lot of our criticism, whether that's turnovers, whether that's simply making or missing shots, whether that is defensive weaknesses, I think coaches can influence it, like move it in a, a degree or two in each direction. I think there are maybe a handful of coaches that can really have teams performing at a uh, an order of magnitude greater than they should be, than their talent level dictates. Um, and I think there are 10 or so coaches who probably make teams underperform to a, a significant degree. And I think everyone else is kind of in that middle. And some of those people in the middle need to might need to have the right roster to elevate into the top five to seven coaches. Some of those people in the middle might need some experience to elevate in that that group. Um, but I do think it's a player's league. I sort of, that my coverage, I think reflects that. And I think a lot of the criticisms that we have for coaches reflects players as well. Yeah. You need to be at DEFCON Eddie Jordan to. Yes. And oh, by the way, like say my, fire the guy. my sort of introduction to the first team I covered was the Eddie Jordan team. I don't know if I've said this on the pod, but Eddie Jordan was the first person in basketball I ever interviewed. Uh, I might have interviewed a couple of draft prospects before then. I don't remember. I'd have to go back and check the dates. But he was certainly the first coach I ever interviewed. And if there was one guy I was going to be like beholden to and like, you know, nope. Okay. Sorry, my computer screens everyone on again. Uh, I've been talking straight for too long. Uh, if there's one guy I was ever going to be like beholden to and, and, and sort of quote unquote carry his water, it would have been Eddie Jordan because I would have been desperate to get any kind of access I had. Rich, I walked into that first interview with him and I said, my gosh, I think I might know more about basketball than this guy. And I killed him. And the way I sort of got on SB Nation's radar is an article called, called The Plight of Eddie Jordan. Uh, and I tore into him after that. I've, I've covered bad coaches. I was not a fan of Eddie Jordan. I was not a fan of Doug Collins. I was around both of them. I was around Doug Collins quite a bit. This is not a being around coaches makes my job easier. But I do think coaches tend to get a short straw. 
and then we can get into this more. But I also think, like you said, you have to be at Eddie Jordan level. You have to be at Mark Jackson level, which is why I think it's funny that his name gets brought up as much as it does. Um, you've got to be at Jason Kidd level. Like you've got to be pretty bad to be the problem on the team. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, just kind of circle back to your media point. Although I don't think we get like unbelievable access, Brett is very good with the media and he's very good with us too. Like don't, don't get it twisted. Like, I mean, we're, we're doing it the basic way, you know, we're not getting fed stories about where the team is at or anything like that. But, you know, just in the traditional way where reporters ask the coach questions and the coach right. is, uh, I mean, for almost every team, but especially for the Sixers, the coach is the main spokesperson for the team. They have to talk the most uh, out of everybody, although he, the Sixers players are supposed to talk more than they should. But he is a, a go ahead. I'm sorry. But he handles the media more more than anybody. And he just in the uh, us asking him what he thinks, he does do a good job with us. And I mean, I, I'll say it like. Do I think he's a good dude? Yeah, I think he's a really good dude. Oh, of course. Um, yep. So I, I mean, like, don't don't get that wrong. Like, we we do have a good relationship with him, but yeah, like you were saying, we're not getting uh, any special scoops from him no, or, I, or anybody else on the. We're also stuff. I've I've had this brought up to me too. Like people, oh well, you need to be nice to keep your access. No, we don't. Like we do not. We we are a big enough organization where we are comfortable with our access. We do not have to worry. About as long as we act professionally, but not once during the season have I ever thought, oh man, I better not ask that question. I might lose my access. That's not anything that runs through our mind. Um, if Brett Brown froze us out, like you and I individually, our coverage would still be largely the same. Yeah. Um, and yeah, he's good in scrums. He's good talking to you. He's good giving you maybe even background context information. But our job is very much not dependent. I mean, just read what we write on The Athletic. It's very, like, we just do not rely on that very much. We don't rely on um, his quotes. We use his quotes. We use his quotes to sort of enhance our story. But our stories are not, like, we, 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 we're looking to provide, like I said, information. That could be statistics. That could be video. That could be quotes. We think quotes are a good way to augment that, but we are not dependent on that to have stories. He he has pretty thick skin from what I can tell too. Uh, just, you know, from going through all the losing and, you know, over the last couple of years, I, he does not freeze out people who are even critical of him, even no. unfair. Nope. Uh, so even Howard so, Eskin gets his questions answered. Yep. Yeah. So I, I guess kind of moving to the team. And I totally agree with all of your points about it being a player's league. And that's what, uh, like that almost always is the explanation for why a team succeeds or fails. I, I think looking at the Sixers, like just from, you know, should he be rotating these guys in or should he be calling these plays? I think it's a trickier team to coach than a lot of people give him credit for. For sure. And we say this all the time, but this guy has coached three separate teams this year. Markel Fultz was starting games off the ball to begin this season. Who in their right mind thought that was going to work? No. 
but because. And by the way, I would I would bet that if you ask Brett Brown honestly, and maybe some years down the line we will get that. I would bet that was more of a keep Markel engaged and help his confidence play than it was a that is a smart basketball decision. I'm, I think if you gave him true serum, he would have told you there's no way this is going to work. <laughs> right. But because of where Fultz was drafted and the investment that the team team made in him, and I mean his theoretical potential, they started him next to Ben Simmons. They had to see it. That's okay. But the team is going to look clunkier when that happens. I mean, come on. So that was a thing where I understood why they why they tried it, but that doesn't mean it was going to work. And then you move into bringing Jimmy Butler into the fold. And now Tobias and, and all of these bench guys come in. And then even after that, Joel misses eight games all of a sudden. This team doesn't have any continuity, man. I, I think even if you look at a team like Toronto, okay, yeah, they added Kawhi. But he fits right into the DeRozan role, and the rest of the team is pretty much the same. To me, that's that's kind of easier than slotting in Jimmy Butler for, for Covington. Those guys have yes. different skill sets. Like, uh, And, I, I mean, this is something we, we can talk more about. I, I don't think we give enough credit or, or just not credit. I don't think we talk enough about as good as Ben Simmons is on the offensive end. And I, this, this goes further than saying he needs a jumper. He needs a jumper. When you look at the coach, I mean, so much of playoff basketball or even in the regular season, the last couple minutes of a game is about going at a, t- at a player's weakness or a team's weakness. And that is as big of a weakness as a player can have in today's game. So in a way, and I think that the rest of the Sixers are like this too. I, JJ is one of the worst defenders in the league, man. I, he's just a he's a massive problem on that end. Especially so, when you consider his minutes, yep. Yeah. So, I mean, in a way, it's I, I kind of understand why the Sixers look great on some nights and bad on other nights. This is a team with unbelievable strengths, but their weaknesses are are more pronounced than a lot of other teams. And, you know, that's how you're going to get this up and down play. I think that's kind of the first thing uh, I would look at. And, you know, until Ben figures out other ways how to shoot, I think even deploying him the best way possible is still going to have its problems. All right, real quick, a word from our sponsor, betonline.ag. We're just about to start college basketball nirvana. With the conference tournaments wrapping up and the NCAA tournament barely more than a week away, there's only one place to go to get in on all this action, betonline.ag. Could you put your money on Colgate winning it all? You sure could. Should you do that? That's a different question, and I'm not really a betting expert and not qualified to give you betting advice. But it's absolutely something you could do with your money if you decided to go that route. Go online and use your mobile phone to sign up today at betonline.ag and try in-game live betting where you can participate with all the action with every play. Once again, March Madness is here. Go to clnsmedia.com slash sixersbeat and use the promo code CLNS50 for a 50% sign-up bonus. That's clnsmedia.com slash sixersbeat and use the promo code CLNS50 for that 50% cash back bonus. 
BetOnline.ag, your online sportsbook experts. So let's go to a couple of generalized questions. Now that we've got sort of the woe is me ranting out of, uh, out of, out of the way and the Twitter can be a shithole out of the way. Um, where would you rank two questions? What would you grade Brett's job so far this season, A through F, and not the Brett Brown A through F scale? We joke that Brett only ever says <laughs> people are a C minus to a B plus. There's never an A, there's never a D. But a real legit A through F scale, where would you put him? <laughs> and also, um, oh, what was the second half of that question? Uh, shit, I just had a complete mind fart. Um, I give you a uh, C minus for your preparedness yeah. here. Um, what would, uh, what did I say? A through F scale. Um, all right, start off with the A through F scale and I'll try to think while you were talking. Yeah, I, I think the, I mean, I, I again, I, I don't even think that this is the right way to evaluate coaches. We just got to get it on, on the record just so we have it. But I agree with you. There's a lot of fault in that. Oh, and the I, other one, um, where would you rank him in, in terms of, of the league? Like just a general range of head coaches. Okay. Be, because I almost reject the first question uh, <laughs> be, because it's just hard. I, I don't know. I mean, the, they played with this current team five five games. I agree with you. The To the second question, and, and this is why I think the talk about coaching it's just so it just seems like we're guessing if if i were to say who are your top 5 coaches to to most people who watch you know cover the league or or watch it closely and maybe this is this is you ask yourself this i would say i i think a lot of people would say eric spolstra and rick carlisle are two of the top 5 or 6 coaches in the league Now, why do they say that? Do they say that because they won a championship a while ago? Because their teams have not been good for a while now. And I think the obvious answer to why their teams haven't been good is that the coaches haven't gotten worse. It's that the players have gotten worse. Now, I, you know, we'll see what happens with those guys. But to me, Brett Brown is a perfect example of this. He lost a billion games the first three years, four years. He's about a decade away from being a 500 coach. Yep. Well, what happens when Joe Embiid and Ben Simmons get on the floor? They start winning, and they start winning quickly. Um, so wh- where would I generally rank him? I I don't know, man. I, th- I think it's it's kind of like you said at the beginning, but again, this is just guessing. I think like there's like four or five guys at a given time who uh, who might make a difference, and they're maybe about the same amount, maybe a little more who, who make the team worse. If I had to guess, he's probably in the middle, but that said, I don't think those tiers are the same people at all times. Like I remember not thinking Nate McMillan was a very good coach in Portland Mm -hmm. with a lot of talent. He should probably, I I know Boonholzer is going to win coach of the year because, you know, he took a team that was kind of directionless last year and they're a juggernaut now. Nate McMillan should come in second or third. I, it's it's like you said at the beginning. They're ahead of the Sixers right now, despite missing Oladipo for a long time. 
So if I had to guess, I would say Brad is somewhere like, I don't know, like 10 to 20. But again, that's just a guess. Yeah. So I agree. I'd probably say somewhere, I'd probably go like 9 to 17 range if I had to really put a number on it. And that's a huge range. And there's a reason for that. Because like I said at the beginning, 5 to 7 who maybe elevate your team a standard deviation above where they should be talent-wise. Probably, I'd say the range of bad coaches is probably bigger. Um, I'd, I'd put that at maybe 10 coaches who really do hold teams back. I don't think Brett is in either camp right now. Like, I think he has to prove a lot more, especially in terms of adjusting to a playoff um, series to move up into that 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 top tier, that I don't, top I don't seven or so. I don't think there's 10, by the way. I, I totally disagree with you. I think it's on bad coaches? Yeah. Uh, that might be outdated info. It seems like a few years ago there was certainly 10 bad coaches. I'd have to go through every list right now. You might be right. But I think Brett has to do more to elevate into that tier. I certainly don't think he's among the ones who are holding the team back or holding teams back in general. If you want to make an argument about this specific talent and his system, we can get into that. Uh, I don't think he's holding this. I don't think his system is holding this team back to the degree people do. Um, but I think he's in that middle range. So in terms of, of this season, and it is really like, it's striking that they made this trade so long ago and they've still only played five games together. Uh, and it's really tough to fully evaluate what this team can become when they barely even know each other. But, you know, I do think certainly defensively, I think this team has underperformed. You know, I think you can point to that. What Almost regardless of which iteration of this team, uh, whether it's the one that started the season with Covington, the one with Jimmy Butler, and now the one with Tobias Harris. Now, it's tough when 60% of your starters weren't starting to start the season, and JJ's only a technicality there, but they don't, like, defense, almost as much as offense, requires knowing each other's strengths. And I do see a lot of blown switches, and I think a lot of that will be corrected in time, but this team has never felt defensively like they've been, had quite the bite that they should have. And they've made some pretty drastic changes in their scheme to get where they are. In theory, I don't necessarily disagree with the changes that they made, but it hasn't yet, you know, fully taken impact. Um, I think win wise, you know, you could argue, maybe you were hoping for 54, 55 wins this season, but they, if, if they end up at 52, that's not, you know, that's not materially a material difference. I would probably say like a B minus C plus in terms of the job, the coaching staff has done this year. So I'm glad you brought up the defense because I think that is probably the biggest thing that you can criticize. They are on cleaning the glass. They are 10th since Butler was, uh, was acquired, which is okay, but not, not to me good enough. Not to you good enough. Now I agree with you. I think they need to be better. They have the talent to be better. And that some of that should fall on the coaching staff. That said, why do we think they should be better? Is it because they were third last year in defense? Uh, because they wonders, overachieved in part, yep. Part of me wonders if this great defensive effort last year is uh, is informing our judgment. Now, I, I, still, I still think that when you have Simmons, Butler, Harris, who is not a great defender, but he's still big and can kind of move his feet a little bit, uh, and then the big fellow in the back, especially. The way that this team 
is going to reach, you know, the NBA finals, if they are going to do that, is by becoming a top four or three defense again. And then playing about the same on offense. I think that's yep. Look, I, I think with Simmons in the half court and, and just the, you know, like you wrote about today on The Athletic with Butler's hesitancy to shoot from three, there's still going to be a good offense. But to me, I do not see like the elite just going to score on outscore you type of potential. The way they're going to get there is by being a really, really good defense. No, they need to and, be above average offensively and elite defensively. I completely agree. So, and again, some of that falls on the players, though. Absolutely. Jimmy Butler has not been the two-way. No nope. His, yeah, I mean, his his reputation defensively is, I mean, it's so out of whack with how he's actually played on that end. And he's he has been bad. Don't get me wrong. Nope. But Robert Covington is way better than him on defense. Way better. Yep. So, yep. so that's part of it. But, uh, look... I, some of this might be him pacing himself for the playoffs too. And look, that's, that's what it's going to come down to. I think another guy who I don't think has been dogging it on defense exactly, but certainly has another level to get to. And you can see it in flashes during the regular season is Ben Simmons. Ben Simmons, when he uh, is completely locked in and I think Brett calls it putting out fires and just making all these rotations. It is crazy the amount of ground that guy can cover. And in the playoffs, he's going to have to turn it up a couple of notches to to help the Sixers get to that level. But uh, yeah, I think defensively, certainly, you know, Brett talks about those changes all the time. I Do, do you, I think they're a little bit overblown. I mean, they switch yeah. a lot now. That's they essentially do. what they do. And and that they, they drop and bead, I'd say, more than they did before. Yeah. That's true. So, so yeah, he should probably take some of the blame there and it's, it's been slow to get implemented, but that, that I think is, is more what I'm concerned with in terms of the on-court stuff than, uh, how many pick and rolls Jimmy Butler gets. Right. Right. Um, yeah. So defensively, like, I'd like to see them maybe mix it up a little more. Like generally, I, I agree with zoning the pick and roll, especially when you have an elite rim protector with Embiid. I'd like to see them just change it up from time to time. Like I think they can become a little bit predictable in their pick and roll coverage. Just throw something that might force a turnover. One of the the consistent weaknesses of this team, we focus so much of the turnover battle on how many they commit. They don't force turnovers at all. And I would try just a minute or two a game, maybe when you have a backup point guard and there's somebody who can't handle the pressure, just Trap a pick and roll, see what happens. They, um, and I think they did that a little bit in the Boston against series. Houston. Well, they did against Houston year. too, uh, and they didn't look like they were even remotely prepared to trap a pick and roll there. And it's, it's hard because you don't have Embiid, um, and I think uh, Bolden was in there for a lot of those, and he doesn't have the he has the foot speed, he doesn't have the mental speed to really do that. Um, so I think they should probably run that out a little bit more in the regular season, just so they're a little bit more prepared when they have to pull it out in the playoffs. Um, you know, I think Embiid's pick and roll coverage might be a little too soft at times. Like I do think, and I don't know if this is fully on the coaching staff or was this part on him, uh, but there are times where he could, you know, he could step out and at least put a hand in their face and still be able to get back if need be. Like, I think there's a little, I think it's maybe a little too soft. 
And certainly I think there's switches. You know, if you want to say that they automatically switch too much. And again, I'm 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 okay with the switching defense, especially in the playoffs. Are there some, you know, Simmons, Reddick pick and rolls that probably shouldn't be switched that you could go under the screen on, get around and live with the result? Yeah, probably. Like I think they probably are a little too aggressive in what they switch, or maybe not selective enough in what they switch. I think that's probably a fair criticism. You know, I do think for the first half of the year the perimeter rotation just wasn't good enough to be a complete team defensively. I think it's better now. Uh, It's not great. You know, I think TJ is, you know, the fact that they need to rely on TJ right now is a huge failure in terms of team building and what you hope this team would be, both in the Markel Fultz drafting in situation and also in the trades that were, were or were not made at the deadline and the um, acquisitions the signings that were made after the deadline, after the buyout market, TJ is, and again, I think we're probably generally pro TJ, uh, but only in select matchups. And right now they rely on him night in and night out for too many minutes. And I think that is a big hindrance to this team's perimeter defense. Like I think they, they just need that one on ball defender that they've never had, but they could be better defensively. And I do put some of that on the coach. Yeah, I think if, if we're looking specifically at the playoffs with uh, with the Sixers defensive matchups, I, I need to think about this a little bit more. But a, a couple of things that I, I think Brett is going to be responsible for. How do they deal with Joel uh, guarding pick and pop centers? That's that's a big part of it. And then the other one is how can they figure out a way to make sure JJ doesn't get attacked? Those those are kind of the specific things I'll be looking at in the playoffs. But to to get back to that perimeter rotation and also just the bench in general, that is another place where this team is not as talented, especially no. in the regular season. Now that'll that'll change a little bit in the playoffs when you can extend your starters' minutes and there's no back to backs. But I mean, even with the team that they have right now, James Ennis is shooting twenty three point five percent from three. And running away with the backup wing spot right now. You just mentioned TJ. I am not that comfortable with him heading into the playoffs and him being a no doubt rotation guy. Yep. I love TJ too. Oh, he's great. Easy to root for. It's you can see the passion he plays with. He's six foot one and too slow. It's just the reality. Mike Scott is a good solid bench piece who we have already seen can do some really dumb shit late in games. I think he's a good player though. Like I think that's a piece he's a rotation Brett, piece for sure. Yeah, yep. That's, that's somebody Brett should be able to use ready. Cause we're, we haven't gotten to the big problem yet. The more I watch, I have no idea what they're going to do at backup center. Nope. They don't have an answer for sure. Bolden is someone that you can't trust right now to make the right decision. Boban, our beloved Boban. You saw it the other night when uh, when Channing Fry got into the game. Larry Drew sub Channing Fry into the game as soon as Boban checked in. Like they were they were matching the minutes. Uh, Zizic got to play Embiid, and then Fry would go in against Boban. And Channing Fry, I don't know what he ended up with. I feel like he bricked six wide open threes. But they were wide open, and I just think when you get into the playoffs, Boban 
is not going to win that trade off. No, you can't. You can't. I mean, we've said that so many times. You can't. Yeah. So, you can't play Bobon. So he, and that's my point is that on the bench, he does not have, in my opinion, a, a good enough bench to like expect there not to be a massive drop off. And again, I, I I think in the playoffs, the bench is a little less important. You get to play your starters heavy minutes, and and it's mostly on them. But look, it, it's a problem against these teams like Toronto and, and Milwaukee. These teams that are really deep. Um, and no, that's I mean, what you, uh, what bench players can you rely upon right now? Like Mike Scott, and that might be he shoots, it. He can shoot two of nine like he did the other night too, and then Absolutely. not be that that helpful. But so. Boban's very matchup dependent. And you might get lucky in the playoffs. Like there might be a uh, an Aaron Baines or a Marcus Ole that you could theoretically put him in. Although Marcus Ole is tough, and it, Aaron Baines shoots one hundred and five percent from three when he plays the Sixers. So who knows? But theoretically, you might be able to uh, to play him some minutes there. But Boban is very matchup dependent. TJ is very matchup dependent, and by that I mean there's like maybe a quarter of the matchups where he's not a complete liability. Um. Mike Scott is, like you said, shooting 23% and running away with the tournament. This team just right now does not have the depth outside of Mike, and not Mike Scott, James Ennis, I meant. This team, depth is a huge issue still. Um, you know, this is part of the reason why, you know, I've said this before. You go back and you look at Boston. You look at Toronto. That depth is not accumulated over the course of two offseasons. And it's really easy to forget that two years ago, 24 months ago at this time, they were losing games on purpose still. Now, part of that's because, you know, Joel Embiid was out and Ben Simmons was out. Um, you were missing those two guys, but they were not, winning was not a priority 24 months ago. So that kind of depth to make winning a priority is the result of good decisions over a long time. And they just haven't made good decisions. They haven't been doing it for a long time. And when you start comparing them to other true contenders, they certainly have, they're, they're playing with one hand tied behind their back in terms of their depth for sure. And and like we said, part of that has to do with their their strategy to keep the the books clean this year. But it, it is what it is. Yeah, they have not hit on some of these guys at the end of the roster. The other thing, and I've said this a couple times already, but it, it needs to be emphasized. It's not going to be totally fair, but he's going to be judged on the playoffs. Yep. We we focus on the regular season and night to night because hey, what what the hell else are we going to do? <laughs> right. I mean, this is, this is our, we these, cover a team for a living. Yes. And, and we, we are absolutely a part of that. We are going to analyze the shit out of a lot of regular season games. That's, that's what we do. But if the Sixers make the NBA finals or maybe even, let's say they lose respectably in the conference finals, let's say, uh, let's say Giannis just goes crazy in the, in the conference finals and the Sixers have no, no answer for him. And, you know, they lose. A, a tight game seven. I'm sure Brett would take a little bit of criticism for something at the end of a game, but in general, I don't think there's going to be too much noise about the coach after the season. If they flame out easily in the second round, which is totally in the realm of possibility, by the way, there is going to be that noise. And uh, look, if you look at NBA history, regardless of what happens, the playoffs are what, take precedence we've seen guys who have won coach of the year recently george carl and uh Dwayne casey last year in toronto 
get fired that same season because of an early exit in the playoffs. And I'm not saying that those decisions were fair or unfair, but that's generally the way the thing that things work. And if that, uh, if that ends up being the case for uh, the Sixers this year, I, I, I get it. Brett's going to get catch, catch him heat. It's the easiest thing to, uh, to look at. Uh, but even then, I'm just thinking of those situations. To me, it goes back to the players. I think the Nuggets lost Iguodala to Golden State that next year, and they got worse. Nick Nurse seems like he knows what he's doing. I don't know. Seems seems like he he's pretty good, but they also made a massive upgrade that's not only helping them in the regular season, but really should help them in the playoffs. Yep. So, yeah. Uh, anyway, as we all know, I, I just think like, the playoffs are what's going to matter for the evaluation. Yeah. And that's look, it's it's the way it works both ways. Could could help Brett out a lot or it could uh could be rough for him. Yeah, and I think I think that playoff series against Boston last year drives much of this narrative. And look, I think Brett got outcoached by Stevens. And by the way, I think Brad Stevens is an incredible coach. I think he's in that top 7 or 8 that we talk about and you look at Boston and they're struggling at times this year. We've said this before. We go on their their subreddit. You go on on Celtics blog, and they're they're talking about rotation. They're talking about timeouts. They're talking about letting teams play through runs. They're talking about all kinds of the same stuff that we do. And generally, by and large, I think coaches fall into three buckets. One is they've won an NBA championship, and they have the trust of of fan bases. And do they make mistakes? Of course they do. Do their teams underperform at times? Of course they do. Will they lose the Knicks on occasion? Yes. But they have that benefit of the doubt because they've already won a championship and they may have won a championship because of their coaching or not, but they had that benefit of the doubt because they did. Then you have the teams that quite frankly, our fan base doesn't care about those teams or those coaches, at least at the beginning while they're developing young players tend to get the benefit of the doubt. Uh, Now, if that stretches on to year after year after year, then the heat comes down, you know, but nobody right now is going to be criticizing uh, Carlisle's day-to-day coaching. Like that's just not what that's not where they are in their their life cycle as a team. Then you have the coaches in the middle. The coaches who have expectations but don't have a championship to turn to. They can't rest on that championship. And those are the coaches where I think every fan base in that predicament is going to heavily, heavily, heavily scrutinize their coach about every decision that is made and blame most of the losses on them. I think it's really fascinating to wonder why. And this isn't a Brett Brown thing at all. This is a, a how we react as fans, how we react as media thing. And, you know, I think part of it is fans are more attached to players. You know, you root for Joel Embiid, you root for Ben Simmons. Not necessarily on this team, because it seems like no matter what you tweet about any player, with the exception of probably Tobias Harris, um, every player is going to have people who strongly dislike them or think they are the problem with this team. And Joel Embiid, obviously, because how could you be a human being and not like Joel Embiid? But every other team, Ben Simmons, Jimmy Butler, J.J. Redick, all good players, all have people who very strongly despise them, which is really weird to me, but it happens. But by and large, I think fans are more attached to players than they are to coaches, which makes sense. They're more important. Um, You know, but also, it's easier to change a coach then it is to change players, especially star players. So if you think if the team's underperforming, that's where your head is going to go to first. 
Um, you know, I think, especially in Brett Brown's case now, I a thought experiment I sometimes play. If somebody else had coached the first three years of the rebuild and Brett was hired at their 28-win season, so he went, you know, 28-52, maybe now 52 or 53. How do we view the job he's done? How does that change how we view him as a coach and the direction of this franchise? You know, I think people would be more willing to live with the mistakes, live with his, um, you know, the things he doesn't do perfectly if they viewed the team on the upward trajectory that it is. And if they viewed it, you know, okay, he lost in the Eastern Conference semifinals last year, but he's only in his second season. He's only, you know, most coaches in their second season, most teams in their second in the first playoff run, they don't get all the way. Like there's a learning curve, blah, blah, blah. I think the fact that he was here for those first three years, in some ways, I'm not even talking record, but in some ways people hold it against him because there's a little bit of a Brett Brown fatigue going on. And I just think people view coaches as much more easily interchangeable. And I think that's one of the big disagreements I have. You know, I think there's one way to completely screw this up and that's a piss off Joel and beater Ben Simmons. Uh, you know, Ben Simmons obviously has that in in a little over 15 or so months, he'll be a free agent. You have to make that decision. But Joel Embiid is, you know, he holds the future of your franchise in his giant hands. If you piss him off, this whole thing was for nothing. So people will say, oh, well, maybe Brett's not a great game day coach. And we'll see if he's a great game day coach, a decent game day coach, or a bad game day coach. I think that's still somewhat to be, to be determined. I don't think he's going to end up in the bad spectrum. But anywhere else, I think is realistic, fair game. But I think people do diminish a little bit the keeping, not necessarily the clubhouse, but certainly your star players happy about the direction of the franchise and with where the team is going. And, you know, I think if you make a change, first of all, you've got to be confident that who you're getting is better. Like I've seen the coaching treadmill and it doesn't always end up positive for your franchise. So I think there's a lot more risk and change and I think people give it credit for. I think there's a lot of people who just get frustrated that some of the same things aren't corrected, which which again I think a lot of times boils down to play style and and talent. But I think I would caution you against just making a change for change's sake because I think there's a lot at stake if you do that. Well, if you talk to Brett and his assistants and and other people around the league who have nothing to do with the Sixers too, they think that play calling is the most overrated part of coaching. Yeah. They well, think by, that by, building. By the way, when, when the Sixers do actually call a play, two years running, they're among the best in the team out of timeout or best in the league out of timeouts, which I think is something that you add on the positive end of his ledger when talking about him as a coach. And you can make the argument maybe that he should call more plays. Um, I don't necessarily buy that, but I can at least hear the reasoning. Uh, maybe you can say that he lets them play too loose and too free. I certainly don't think they play too fast. I think if you draft Ben Simmons, you're committing to that because that's how you get the most out of him. But I think the play calling has generally been good, if we're being honest. But but he comes from the culture of San Antonio, where you, you give the team a loose structure, and then he wants them to figure it out. Uh and I think that's right. Like in the playoffs, I, I think he'll call more plays. I think there will be more Butler pick and rolls if the matchup, let's say he has the other team's point guard on him, or if Tobias has a mismatch, they will exploit that. And it won't just be play calls. It'll be the Sixers just doing that on their own. Um, 
but but back to that being overrated the thing they think is under underrated is and this word gets thrown out too easily but just in general the building of a culture and like you said keeping everybody in check and making sure everybody's happy they think that is the most important thing by a mile and it's it's not football like when the eagles are playing well people look at something like Doug Peterson's run pass ratio. And to be clear, I think when the Eagles are playing well, I think Doug should be praised more than Brett. When he's playing poorly, I think he should be questioned more. It's pretty right. simple. Much uh, much more impact on the game. I 100% agree with you. So, you know, and I, and I think the the perfect example of the keeping the clubhouse in check happens to be with the greatest team maybe we've ever seen. A lot of people think Steve Kerr is better at that than anybody they've ever seen. Uh, and it's, you know, he, it seems like even when Draymond and KD have their little blow up this year, it seems like he balances these, those personalities expertly. And you look back to, you know, the, the great coaches, the great dynasties. I'm thinking back to the bulls when, with Michael Jordan, it's funny that the triangle offense gets all the love because Phil Jackson seemed pretty good at managing Michael Jordan. And that to me, you know, if you read something like the Jordan rules or, or just anything about those teams, him keeping Jordan, you know, just in house and seemingly under control was the most important part about it. Uh, and then you look at Brett, like you said, he's built a really strong bond with Joel. Joel has been here longer than anybody. Brett has been there for some traumatic moments in his life. Uh, and I, Joel seems to really like, uh, seems to really like Brett. And then the other one is kind of by circumstance, but Ben, who in a lot of ways is as all business as a 22 year old athlete can be. He's never going to have a relationship with a coach the same way he has with Brett. Now, if, if you think that's overrated, fine. I'm just, I'm just saying like, that's, that second part is a fact. Um, and I do think we have seen this season positive signs in terms of their relationship. Look, and that's just a guess, me saying that. But honestly, like, did you see the other night when they, they chest bumped after a game yep. or after a, after a lap? I've never seen that nope. from them. So they seem to be in a pretty good place. And to me, that's one of the most important things for this franchise. And that happened under Brett Brown's watch. So I, I, I think the way I would wrap kind of this long rant I have up here, a lot of the stuff that coaches consider important don't happen on the court. And I think part of that is kind of BS for us because we do need to criticize them and hold them accountable in some way. But it also is kind of true that this is very much a people business. People business, player business. I agree 100%. So I guess, um, hmm. you know, I think, where do I want to go? Let's just go through a, a, a list. So go through a list of common complaints about Brett or the Sixers coaching staff in general which ones you really attribute to him and think are big-time problems. We'll start off with the pick-and-roll usage. They are still currently the least frequent team in the league in pick-and-roll. That's climbed a little bit 
since Jimmy Butler and Tobias Harris have been here, but it's still not a staple of their playbook. I will say, I'll, I'll let you start. Go ahead. Um, I don't think it matters all that much. I, I, I think their personnel doesn't dictate that they should run a lot of pick and roll. You cannot run a pick and roll with Ben as the ball handler, first off. Maybe those snug pick and rolls on the baseline, but I mean, in general, the point of a spread pick and roll in the NBA is to have a ball handler who can shoot a three off the dribble and force the defense to make a tough decision because of that. I think we're watching more and more with Jimmy that that his pick and rolls are a little more complicated than that. Maybe Tobias could get a few more, but the other end of that equation is Joel. And, you know, it's, I I think you want him on the post more than, than you want him diving to the rim. I think that plays to his strengths, which is his strength and his touch around the rim more than kind of his athletic ability. Could we see a couple more in the playoffs? Yeah, that, that wouldn't be a bad thing. But I, as I said earlier, I think you're going to see more called plays and more matchup hunting in the playoffs. But overall, I you tweeted out the numbers today, or it was in your article or something. I forget which. Uh, the Jimmy dribble handoff is more efficient, or is less efficient than a JJ JoJo DHL. It just the isn't that Jimmy pick and roll? Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I I wouldn't mind seeing a little bit more pick and roll, but honestly, it's it's low for me on the list of common complaints. So this is a ranking of least frequent pick and roll to most frequent. Sixers, obviously least frequent second, least frequent golden state warriors, third, least Milwaukee bucks. Then you got the new Orleans Pelicans, Denver nuggets, Boston Celtics, Houston rockets. We get it. The best offenses in the league, right? Washington wizards, blah, 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 uh, Pacers. And then Raptors. So where they rank in terms of efficiency in pick and rolls, Sixers are actually the fourth most efficient pick and roll team in the league. Warriors second, Bucks fifth, Nuggets seventh, Celtics sixth. So you sort of ask yourself, why are all of these teams that are theoretically good at running pick and rolls running them the fewest? I think there is a little bit of a law of diminishing returns. Like I think teams that base their offense around the pick and roll will rely on it probably more than they should and more than their talent dictates. And eventually you can become stagnant and you can become predictable and you can defend against that. Um, Whereas I think if you, you know, selectively use pick and rolls, I think you can, you can become a little more efficient. You, you only run them when you have a mismatch, when you have the talent offensively to execute it. Um, I think the Sixers are, you know, we go back to Jimmy Butler and right now his pick and rolls aren't efficient, but the Sixers are, Believe it or not, sticking with it. Like, I see a lot of people say that, you know, Butler's stuck in the corner, blah, 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 blah. No, he, 24% of his offensive possessions are still coming in the pick and roll. And that's just as a score. That's not including his, his passes out of there. Um, that was about 31% with Minnesota. So is it down? Yes. That's natural moving to a team with a bunch of options. Is it eliminated from his game? No, not at all. Um, so I think the Sixers should be, you know, could they run it more? Yes. Do I think they need to be even in the top 20 teams in pick-and-roll usage? No, probably not. You don't have that dynamic pick-and-roll ball handler. Like, even Jimmy Butler right now, 
he's much more likely to try to draw the switch and either attack that, get to the free throw line, or use that to set up his teammate than he is to actually make a pass off the pick and roll than he is to actually turn the corner off the pick and roll. That's just not really his game. Tobias Harris is an okay scorer out of pick and roll sets, doesn't get to the foul line, doesn't re- isn't really much of a passer, so he's a little limited in there too. And Ben Simmons is just not only is can you not run pick and rolls with him, but when you have him with another big on the on the f- floor, it makes it more difficult to run pick and rolls. You know, a lot of the criticism that Brett gets is that he's supposedly not running the right system for his talent, and I'd argue that he is. You know, I think. So we'll get to the DHO in a second. But I think when you have Joel Embiid, when you have J.J. Redick, when you have the limitations of Ben Simmons, I think by and large the offense that he has in place is some version of what they should ultimately run. And again, could they be, you know, rather than maybe 12% of their possessions, could they be, or 12% being out of um, pick and rolls, could they maybe be 15%, which would put him right about 20th to 23rd in the league. Yeah, that might be a fair complaint. And maybe you could adjust those numbers a little bit to get them up there. But I don't think it's nearly the problem that a lot of people do. And I think it would be great if they had a Kemba Walker type who you could just give to the pick and roll and attack a mismatch. I don't think they necessarily have that on the roster. How about a big man, too, that yeah, dives to the rim? Like- yep. Like a I mean, Tyson did they Chandler. run pick and roll with uh, with Rashawn Holmes? Of course they did. Did they run yeah. it with Neurons Noel? Yeah, they did. Um, Joel's just never, he doesn't have that explode in space on the move without gathering himself that a lot of those elite rim runners have. Yeah, and I think that the general point with, let's just say the starting five, when you say his talent and whether the uh, the system fits, the lane is going to be clogged with Ben in there. So you might as well try and get the defense moving side to side to try and create little slivers for these great athletes to get to the rim. And in general, I think they do that. The, uh, the more I think about it, their best potential kind of pick and roll dive guy is Ben. And he's not great at that. He needs to get, he needs to get better at that. It does not seem like he loves making kind of a quick slip to the basket. And he could potentially be pretty devastating doing that, but that has not clicked yet, and that is something that hopefully in time he and Brett will figure out. All right, so I guess that's a natural transition to the dribble handoff. Do yeah. they rely on the J.J. Redick dribble handoff? I'm just going to say J.J. Redick because it could be with Ben Simmons. It could be with Joel Embiid. Do they rely on that too much? Can you give me the percent? Because you, you seem to have all these stats in front of you. The so percent. they're the second. They're the second most frequent team in dribble hands off at eight point three percent of their offense. Eight point three percent. Eight point three. Um, to put that in perspective, the lowest team is Oklahoma City at two point six percent. Midpoint is probably right around five percent of their offense for Weird. a a middle of the road team. We are talking about a possession or two per game. It's not as much as people think it is. And that's, by the way, having probably the best DHO guy in the league in J.J. Redick. The Sixers are the, despite being the second highest volume handoff team in the league, they are the fourth most efficient handoff team in the league at 1.01 points per possession, which if you probably just look at like offensive rating, you think that's low. No, in a half court set, 1.01 points per possession is an extremely high number. The only ones, one of the three teams ahead of them is Golden State at 1.02. They're the only other, well, and actually Detroit, uh, the Pistons, 6.8%, 1.04. 
but the Sixers are among the most frequent and the best teams in the league at the dribble handoff. It's almost like they have a ton of people working for their analytics staff and in their front office who understand and and give this information to Brett and say, yeah, you can keep doing this. (laughs) It is almost like, yes, they are are at least trying to run their offense based on the talent they have around them. To me, the J.J. Joe DHO is awesome. Keep running it. I I know... uh, it was funny the the timing was completely off against Cleveland the other night, and that's I think there's an easy explanation for that. That's just yeah. because Joe was out for so long, and and JJ was out even a little bit before then. That's a great play. I I love all the options you get from it. I love when uh, when JJ comes flying off that, and usually it's Ben's defender, but sometimes Tobias or Jimmy or kind kind of helps down at the nail against JJ and then they get either an open three or or an attack off of those things. Those two have developed a great chemistry. That play is that play is very good. And they honestly I think they should run that more in the playoffs. They've kind of gotten away from it a little bit recently. Yep. No, and I mean it, it, that is something where it is very heavily scrutinized. You know, when it doesn't work at the end of the game, it becomes a, a an outcry. And right now when J.J. Redick is struggling, uh, it really comes under fire. Um, it's not as frequent as you, I think people think it is. Like Now, this is only possession-ending events, so it's not, um, not going to take everything into account. Hold on, I just dropped it. Uh, hold on, sorry. Maybe I'll edit this out if I'm not too lazy. So... The dribble handoff results in 32% of Reddick's field goals, turnovers, or drawn fouls. Ha, he doesn't draw fouls on it. Well, that's not true. He gets a lot of and ones um, on four-point plays. He is shooting 43.2% field goal, 53% effective, turns the ball on over on only 8.5% of them, and generates 1.03 points per possession on those, which again is an incredible number for a half-court offense, especially for something that has resulted in 285 shots. Um, can it be streaky? Yes. But that doesn't even take into account the open looks it generates for Joel Embiid or Ben Simmons. And I would, you know, some people look at that number and say it's not everything. It's not. But I would say one thing that's not looking at, I would say that generates more open looks for your best two players than a Jimmy Butler pick and roll does. Like I, I I'm sure if I go through every JJ Redick assist and every um Jimmy Butler assist, there will be more off of dribble handoffs than there there will be off of Jimmy Butler pick and rolls, especially to those two players. And getting open looks for your best players is something I have great interest in. I think that helps your team. So I think there's a lot, you know, I think that play and JJ Redick's skill sets, there's a real you know, symbiotic relationship to him and Embiid, to him and Simmons even, that I think scrutinizing that to the degree it is. And look, if you want to say end-of-game offense, to be honest, I don't think they've overly relied on that, at least in terms of game-winning shots. They run a hell of a lot of pick-and-rolls for Jimmy Butler. They run a hell of a lot of pick-and-rolls for Jimmy Butler, absolutely. Um, No, I I don't think that's too big of a part of the offense. Um, And do they run a lot of it that result in nothing? Yeah, they do. But it's worth 
running that to see if the defense is going to handle it correctly because it's a real easy thing to pass out of as well. I think I, I think that should be a staple of their offense. Absolutely. Another thing, just quickly, because I think we've kind of covered this, that those numbers don't account for are when uh, I'm, I'm almost sure it, it, it's not counted as a DHO when JJ's guy top locks him and he just runs him into Joe and Joe gets a layup just dribbling around the three defender or the two defenders and JJ. Yeah. That would there's be JJ of, Redick as the, that would be Joel Embiid as a pick and roll ball handler. I, I would bet. Yeah. Um, which sounds weird. Turnovers. This is the big one. Okay. So I do think there is some, uh, validity to complaining about the turnovers now. Okay. The, the one thing I don't like is when people say it's been a problem for six years. Just, yeah, just that's toss those first three years out. Three like, of them, you're running Michael Carter-Williams and Tony Roten out there. Of course it was a problem. Of course. Yeah. Yes. Doug uh, Collins' teams would have turned the ball over a lot, and Doug Collins was I, – I, he went to too far of a degree to prevent turnovers, and they would have led the league in turnovers. So Brett was actually asked a lot about this today, about not uh, – you know, just, is this something that coaches can help? What does he think about all the turnovers? You know, blah, blah, blah. And he brings up this point and it is like, it's true. The teams that, uh, that lead the league in lowest turnovers over the past few years have not been very good offenses in general because they don't get very good shots. Now that's not always the case. Uh, just looking at it this year, cleaning the glass, Milwaukee's in the top 10 and they're, they're a great offense. Boston is in the top 10 and they're a top five offense. Uh, but you know, Charlotte takes good care of the ball. They're 21st. Sacramento takes good care of the ball. They're 20th. I, Orlando. I don't think, huh? Orlando's Orlando. in there. They take good care of the ball. Yep. Washington. Yep. They're dreadful. So, yep. So yeah, I kind of understand it, it, it in that, when he says, I don't want to be the team with the lowest turnovers in the league. Um, and I also understand that when you have Embiid and Simmons, you're never really going to be a low turnover team. Right. If you're running the offense through a post player, and Joe has cut his turnovers every year, which is good. But when he's playing with Ben and the spacing is clunky and and Ben has his own problems when he plays against like Kawhi Leonard and turns the ball over 12 times a game, uh, they are not going to be a low turnover team. They are right now on cleaning the glass. They are 28th. But I do think, and, and that's not, you need that to be better for sure. That said, the difference between that and that number and the 15th best offense, if they were just at the midway point, we're talking about less than 2% of your possessions. Yep. I mean, if you just go 1% of your possessions, you get all the way up to 19th in the league. Yep. So yeah, I, would I, would I like if they, they took better care of the ball? Yes. Uh, is it a problem for them potentially in a playoff series? Yeah, I mean, if they have one of those games where they just vomit all over themselves, like on Family Guy, when they all just start throwing up, 
yes, <laughs> they're going to be screwed. But uh, I, I do think like the the mark that you're looking for is somewhere up, you know, shaving off 1.5%, getting up to about 15th. Because if you're 15th and you get to the foul line at the rate they do, if you crash the glass at the rate that they do, and if you just, I mean, they've been a, a high effective field goal team for the past two years. I think they were first or second last year. I think they're looking at now they're seventh this year. That's going to be a really good offense. But again, it kind of goes back to what we were saying at the beginning. I, I kind of, I don't expect this to be a juggernaut offense. So when we complain about something like turnovers, it's talking about something kind of at the margins. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think a lot of the teams that are at the top of the league, they are not hunting good enough shots. Like if you start prioritizing taking care of the ball over generating good shots, I think you've lost the war. Won the battle, lost the war. The the only team that's broken the code with that is San, San Antonio. Antonio. Well, ironically. Um yeah, and they they break a lot of codes. Similar to, to Milwaukee. Milwaukee's breaking defensive codes. San Antonio sort of breaks offensive codes. Uh, with their lack of turnovers, mid-range shots, um, sort of going against what you would call 2019 offensive philosophy, at times at least. But yeah, I think a lot of the teams at the top, in order to be a, a top team and taking care of the basketball, I think you're giving up high-value shots. And I, th- I think ultimately the end goal of an offense is to get high-value shots. And like you said, constructing around a post player in 2019 and a point guard who can't shoot, you're never going to be, and who, whose primary value is in the open court, taking high-risk passes, you're never going to be a top team. Probably even a top 10 would be very unrealistic given the, um, given, g- given the roster construction. So would I prefer them in the 15 to 20 range? Yeah. Like, I think that's, you know, fewer turnovers are better. I agree with that. And are there matchups where they become particularly turnover-prone? And I think that is a much bigger... Um, bigger concern than, you know, NBA.com stats has them 27th. You said clean and glass have them 28th. Probably immaterial because we're talking probably about a, a tenth of a percent. But is it, that to me is a bigger concern than being the fourth worst turnover team in the league. Like, can they handle the pressure of Boston? Can they handle the pressure of Toronto? And most specifically, can Ben Simmons handle the pressure of Kawhi Leonard and Al Horford and whoever else Boston is going to throw at him. I think that is the most pressing question. I think a lot of that is on Ben Simmons' limitations. You know, I think if there's two things I think are legitimate criticisms of Brett Brown, it's first of all, the defense isn't um, isn't playing at a high enough level. And we can talk whether that's scheme, getting new guys acclimated, whatever, whatever it is. And what in the hell do you do with Ben Simmons in the half court against really good defensive teams? I don't hard, think the man. dunker spot is an elegant solution. I don't think it works often enough, especially when you're talking about Joel Embiid being, being on the court as well. If you're talking about Ben Simmons at the five, then I think the dunker spot is a little more realistic. But in terms of on the court with Joel Embiid and playing off the ball in the half court, I don't think they entirely know what to do with him right now. And I think that's probably the biggest question as they play Milwaukee twice down the stretch. And by the way, Milwaukee's really good at taking away the paint and giving up open jump shots. Um, we'll see how the Sixers respond to that as they play, you know, Boston one more time here. 
Can they solve that riddle? Can they figure out what to do with Ben Simmons in the half court against elite defensive teams? And most specifically, because he's played well against Golden State, who's a really good defensive team, at least at times when they're locked in. He's played well against some good defensive teams. Can he play really well against these teams that have flummoxed him throughout you know, the last two seasons? And I do think some of that rests on, on Brett Brown's shoulders. Yeah, I, I th- there are some things that that I wish he would he would toy with a little more in terms of maybe using Ben as a screener at the three point line. Maybe yeah, you that, know, if you, that, if that's you run really J- what it is. Yep. If you run JJ off a screen, I, I would like to see what happens there because then maybe defenders couldn't completely take their eyes off him at the three point line. But uh, again, if if we're assigning blame here to the coach and the the player the, play, oh. the player's deficiency is is like 85 to maybe 90 percent of this so yeah it uh, th- there are times where i i do i do wonder what that would look like but it, it seems like brett has stuck to the philosophy of if we're gonna post joel up i want him to see the same picture every time yep. i want him to see the same the guys on the same four floor spots that's ben in the dunker spot it's a guy in the corner guy in the wing guy uh pretty much towards the top of the key um and he thinks that's how joe is going to learn to not turn the ball over which is what we're talking about that's how you know his his pattern recognition and, and understanding where the doubles come from and seeing where his outlets are that's the best way to do it and i i think there's a level of uh of truth to that but you do see, like, when they do post up Ben, they'll... Oh, they move completely differently. They'll move like crazy. So yep. you, you kind of wish that uh, you could clone Ben so he could screen for players while you post up Ben. But, uh, yeah, it's... Look, that is that is something that, that he's going to have to figure out. Yep. Um, the rotations. So this is my least favorite one. Yes. <laughs> because to me it's the most like generic complaint his rotations aren't good what do you mean (laughs) their bench players aren't good he's not deploying james ennis correctly yeah no i know and look tj ben lineups drive me insane too and i was really hoping amir moose lineups drove me insane too oh my god yes Uh, luckily they abandoned that one pretty quickly if you go back and listen to our our off-season podcast we called for tj's role to be diminished like Go back. Uh, I mean, it is it's everybody knows that TJ Ben has its limitations on both ends of the court. The fact that you don't have enough viable bench players to run TJ out of the lineup is not the head coach's fault. Well, <laughs> all right. So if we want to get into Brett Brown, the GM, and how much say he had in the offseason, maybe it that, could be. That's a different story. But to me, I'm talking about coaching acumen here. They need more players who can shoot who can dribble and who can defend they just don't have that and when you start talking about rotations yeah i look i fully get the limitations of tj ben i cringe when i see it too but like what are you gonna do play jonathan simmons 20 minutes like that's not the answer if there's one thing i've learned over the last couple of weeks is jonathan simmons for any real time in the playoffs is not the answer you know what are you gonna do slide mike scott down play jonah bolden as a backup center and do what exactly? Like, I, I just don't know what the good rotations are once you have to start getting away from the starting lineup. 
And I think the staggers here, and again, we've only seen the starting lineup for five games. So I'm real interested to see what the staggers become. You know, I think that is one area people criticize sometimes that the lineups are a little too inflexible. And I can, I can give a little bit of credence to that. Like I, th- yeah. I, I think there's probably some where Brett sort of just wants them to have some familiarity, like especially well, when he doesn't rely on playing the starters, you know, 25 minutes a game together, like some coaches do, or at least did in the past. Like, I think he wants some sort of, um, you know, pattern to it so that lineup combinations get some familiarity with each other, at least the key ingredients of lineup combinations get some familiarity heading in the playoffs, but I think they can be a little bit inflexible. But do I think that's one of the main problems of this team? No, not really. They're partly inflexible too, because you have to play Redick and Embiid together. Right. So any creativity you want to have with the, the other star players has to revolve around that because that, that seems like just the way to go where those two, they, they help each other on offense and Joe covers for Jay, JJ on defense. So, yeah, I, I just don't think it's a big deal. I mean, think about this. There have been people I have heard who are calling for Shake Milton, <laughs> who you would have to uh, I guess play him in the playoffs. Him. You'd have to – I think you'd have to make him you know, an NBA contract instead of a two-way because you can't for play sure. in the playoffs on a two-way. I don't think it's an insane idea, first off. I like it's not one I would dismiss out of hand. But the fact that we are calling for Shake <laughs> right. Milton, man, is I think that goes to show where the, the bench rotation is at. Well, right I now. mean, that should have been like the other game, I forget the Bulls game, when Levine just roasted him down the stretch. And everybody said, Okay, well, what's the solution to this? Well, how could you not try Amir Johnson? And I look, said Amir that. was uh, Amir was probably the best big man that played for you that night but the fact that amir johnson is a solution to a zach levine pick and roll it's a great i mean point. look this team does not have that many options yeah it's a great point i think brett made a mistake in not playing amir and i, I realized too. i said and I re- that and i realized that is a crazy thing to say <laughs> right because amir is pretty much cooked yes another great guy um not somebody you want to rely on for high leverage situations in the nba playoffs not something most contenders would rely upon in the NBA playoffs. Yep. So if you told me cut Amir and make shake an NBA contract, I don't disagree with you, but I think the fact that we're at that point <laughs> does go to show where, where yep. we're at in general. Absolutely. Absolutely. So yeah, I, I think rotations is my least favorite one because at least when, uh, like I disagree with the pick and roll stuff, but at least you're, pointing out a specific thing even if i think it's incorrect rotations is just his rotations are bad well i mean you need to be a little more specific than that yep (sighs) all right what what else is frequently brought like um a lot of people don't like the pace they're not even that high of a pace team they're about eighth in the nba in pace a lot of people bring up three-point shooting, which is funny to me because they're not even real. They're, I mean, they're literally dead center in a league, and how many other shots come from three-point range? Like they're not over reliant on a three-point shot. I would say they're under reliant on it. They should probably shoot more. Um, I bet. I mean, I know because he said it the other day. I Brett would like them to shoot more. Um, you know, I think some of these complaints 
and I don't mean this in a negative way, but the NBA has changed a lot in 10 years, like an almost unimaginable amount in the last 10 years. So I think if maybe, let's say, you skipped the process years and weren't a big NBA fan or more of a Sixers fan, and you come back in and you're watching it now, what they're doing probably looks foreign to you and the number of threes they're taking and how quickly they get up and down the court and you know sort of how aggressive they are in early clock. But when you look at it league-wide, they're not. They're not an overly aggressive team. Ben Simmons will be at times, but they're not a super fast-paced team. They don't take a lot of threes relative to the rest of the league. And they're not any more reliant on them. You know, they'll run more post-up than almost anyone in the league because they have Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons and, and you need to post them at times. But I don't, I, I think a lot of that criticism is just like the NBA has changed and it's changed a lot and it's changed in a very quick amount of time. And if you're not completely up on that, like I said, this game could almost look foreign to you. Yep. Just looking at some of their defensive kind of profiles. I mean, they give up a lot of mid-range shots. They're in the bottom or they're in the top third of the league uh, in terms of the most mid-rangers they give up. They take away the corner three, which is good. I, you know, I like, look, not everything is perfect, but. Uh, really, I, to me, it's, it's the turnovers. Their, their I, yeah. biggest problem defensively is not forcing turnovers. And part yeah, of that which is, is funny scheme. because it's the offensive turnovers that people bring up. Oh, yeah. I, I care much more about the defensive one. And part of that is scheme. Like when you when you play soft pick and roll coverage, you give that up to some degree. Like you are conceding a mid-range shot, but you're also conceding a real chance at forcing a turnover. And you live with that. And part of that is also that there's just not a whole lot of playmakers on the perimeter outside of Simmons and outside of Butler who for his defensive faults is still a playmaker on the perimeter. There's just not much outside of that. So, you know, I think part of that is scheme, which we can get into a bait, whether it's a willing trade off or not. And part of that is personnel as well. But they, when we talk about the shot um, totals and the turnover differential, I care much more about the differential than just how many they commit on the offensive end. Yep, um, I think I think we're about done, right? I don't yeah. Think well, anybody... the thing is, we've we've now we've now rambled for an hour and a half, and I don't remember what we have and we haven't discussed. Uh, I'm trying to look through my list and whatever. Like, here, here's the bottom line: in a month or two months, we'll be having this conversation again because Philadelphia is going to be either in love with what the Sixers did in their playoff run, or furious at what they didn't do. And so, there is almost no middle ground in there. I, I, I agree with you, but I don't think we'll be having this conversation if the Sixers make the finals as much. No, no. Then it'll be about the players, which is really interesting, too. Um, I. So if, if Sixers run a dribble handoff, win a playoff game like they did last year against the Heat, it's, man, what a great shot by J.J. Redick. What a great screen by Joel Embiid. Look at how much... Look at how much attention he attracts from the defense. If they run that exact same play against Boston on Christmas Day and miss it, it's what a stupid fucking coach. <laughs> and that, to me, is sort of how you sum up this uh, this debate. This is how you sum up, like I said, most coach most debates around coaches who have expectations but have not won an NBA championship. And I just think it's a little bit, like I said, players league. We rate coaches based off of that. And... Can Brett make the adjustments to win the playoffs? We'll see. 
But I think there's a lot of people who are really eager to sort of write that narrative and set in stone those deficiencies. And I think we, especially in today's age, where there is so much coverage, where there is so much social media activity, I think we're all real eager to be quote unquote right. And I think we need to be honest about what we truly do know and do not know, which is why I'm, you know, in sort of a wait and see mode. Yeah. Uh, but I do, unfortunately, I'm going to, I'm going to make a little bit of a prediction here. I do think we're going to be having this conversation in a few months. Oh, I mean, it's because the expectations are low. First of all, the East is really freaking good. And we're talking about four deep here. That's really freaking good. The other three teams who are much deeper have more experience together and maybe don't have as much high end talent. But I think those other two things are sort of underrated, especially the experience together. So can they they get out of the East? They also fit better. They also fit better. So can they get out of the East? Yes. But if they don't, yeah, it's going to be, I think we're going to be having this discussion again pretty soon, which is, you know, is that fair? Is that just um, frustration? Is that fatigue? We'll see. But there's, I mean, look, it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough. Yeah. All right. Thank you, Rich, for what is now an hour and a half of your time. Uh, We will talk to you soon. Yeah. See you, man.